0: I am delighted to welcome David Sedgwick tonight um, to talk about Viking surgery. Um, David and I were briefly registrars together in the Royal infirmary we sort of overlapped a little bit in Edinburgh and we were all uh, absolutely paranoid about what kind of um, you know job we were going to end up in and you know flailing away needlessly as you do and David sneaked into the job we'd all we'd all really love to have done, <laughs> and f- since 1992 he has been a rural surgeon in uh, Belfort Hospital, Fort William, uh, one of the last of the generalists, and uh, someone who was doing trauma surgery before trauma surgery was trauma surgery. <laughs> um, he now looks after a great deal of m- m- mountain rescue uh, trauma, and. Um, I'm just going to ask him at the end, so you can prepare yourself this one, who is going to replace you when you go? So, David. <laughs> Thank you, thank you very much indeed, Bill.
1: <clears throat> thank you very much for the very kind invitation to come down to, um, to Nottingham. Um, this actually is my first visit to Nottingham. Um, I haven't travelled traveled down here before. Um, and it was, uh, it's been a lovely day today. I came on the sleeper last night. I finished a clinic in Skye at quarter past five last night um, and then took the sleeper. Unfortunately, the Fort William end of the sleeper was full, so I had to go to Knewsee, um to catch the sleeper about 50, 60 miles east of us uh, and came down arriving this morning uh, at about uh, 8 o'clock into, into Nottingham, and I've had a lovely day just pottering around um, with the tenants, with Yvonne looking after me and uh, in the house there. Um, so this is very different from what I saw when I looked from the train coming from um, Crewe across to, uh, through Derby uh, to Nottingham. This is where I work. Um, this is uh, Ben Nevis, Carnmore, um, jerrig and Moore and Loch Linnie uh, in front of here. And I um, did not think that I, when I was growing up in uh, a place called Sedba, um, and this is me uh, in my teens, uh, just having done my first climb on Middlefell Buttress in Langdale, um, didn't think that I would end up working um, in a place with, uh, with climbing um, uh, so involved in it uh, and became a Viking surgeon. Um, and here we've got uh, myself and uh, Jeff Lachlan, my colleague, when we had the 25th anniversary Viking Surgeons meeting. Uh, some of you may recognise this as the... Uh, um, in uh, the College of Surgeons Grounds in Edinburgh. Uh, my colleague here is Alastair Coots, who was the surgeon in Lerwick uh, in Shetland, uh, demonstrating that uh, he operates with a Viking helmet on, as we all do, um, and was doing some, uh, does resectional urology as well. Um, we don't always have nurses draped over our shoulders in that way uh, <laughs> when we're working. What I want to do in the next 40 minutes or so is to try and give you a run through of what the Viking, who the Viking surgeons are, um, to talk a little bit about the geography um, uh, that is involved and that is important. What we do in a Viking hospital or what's called a rural general hospital to show you some, uh, some of the trauma management that we do and uh, the sort of things that we see which are slightly different um, from maybe the trauma that arrives in uh, in uh, the Queens Medical Center or here in, uh, uh, in the hospital, in the city hospital here, um, to think about the general surgical service, the challenges of Viking surgery, and maybe try and think about one or two solutions if we can um, for that. The Viking Surgeons started in 1973 with three single-handed consultants, one in Wick, one in uh, Stornoway uh, and the other in Shetland, deciding that they needed to have a meeting that met the needs of those surgeons, as an academic meeting and as a social meeting. But also that the partners came along too, who tended to be in fairly isolated circumstances uh, and met together once a year for this academic and supportive meeting. Uh, rather than being a political meeting and we always invited um, speakers from tertiary centers to come and spend two days with us to educate us but also for us to educate those speakers. This was our uh, 40th uh, annual meeting um, in WIC in September of this year um, and uh, they're mainly the Viking Surgeon, one or two of the, the speakers have come from elsewhere um, and uh, we meet once a year uh, in each other's hospitals. So it's not in Liverpool um, Conference Centre or Birmingham uh, but it's actually in the uh, environs of the hospitals that we work in so that we can experience something of the environment that these people that we each work in and see some of the culture of the place as well as being educated um, in that. This is a relief map of Scotland and. It demonstrates, the uh, on here, you can see the Great Glen, Inverness at the top end here, Fort William at the bottom end, uh, the Orkneys, Shetland, Stornoway, Oban. And you can see the mountains, which create some of the difficulties that we have in transporting patients around and patients getting to and from hospitals, and also because we have seas that are not always uh, particularly clement um, and uh, certainly tend to be fairly rough, particularly up... uh, Uh, in the Pentland Pentland Firth and in the Minch here. Um, And so we have hospitals based in uh, Lowick, in the north, in Shetland, in Kirkwall, in Orkney, in Wick, um, in Stornoway. Those are the island hospitals. Um, Wick, Fort William and Oban are the mainland hospitals. And you can see pictures of them there. They're not huge hospitals. um, And they are providing care to these areas round about them. And you can see in these circles, these are the um, referral hospitals that we we have in uh, here. We have Aberdeen taking patients from Orkney and Shetland. Wick uh, will refer in general to Inverness, but occasionally because of fixed wing can go to Aberdeen. Um, And Stornoway and and ourselves in Fort William will refer up to Inverness. Um, And Oban will often head down towards Paisley. Um, in there, But these are the sort of areas that we are covering. And just to give you an idea of where Fort William is, if you're not sure, here it is. Um, if you go out to Malig, that's about 42 miles. Um, down here to this area, about 35 miles, 32 miles north, we take patients from Skye, which is 84 miles away, um, and also from um, Rum, Egg, and Muck, um, and also the Mercant Peninsula, Uh, Someone from Kilhoen will take about two hours to get to Fort William in an ambulance. Um, So the distances are significant for patients travelling. Consultant staffing, mainly three surgeons. Um, We have uh, a long-term local comes and does a weekend once a month with us. Um, The populations are not huge. Um, Fort William there is 20,000 but it will be up to 60,000 in the summer between May and September because of tourism. Um, Oban similarly will go up a significant amount. Um, we take on Sky, and those are the, so it's around twenty to 40,000 um, people um, are served by these hospitals. In general, there are three general surgeons, three anaesthetists, three physicians. We do elective and emergency work. Um, we have nine junior doctors supporting us who are fairly junior, two FY1s and the rest are FY2s and ST1s in general practice um, and uh, a CT1 in surgery. We do an outreach visit to the island of Skye. Once uh, a fortnight, we're over on Skye and I'll show you a picture of that. And We have uh, our hub hospital in Inverness where we have managed clinical networks and I'll explain about that and how we're able to continue doing what we do. So... We are 70 miles from Inverness, about two hours in an ambulance, because the road is not um, like the uh, M1 or the M6. It's certainly a, a tourist route uh, alongside Loch Ness. Um, we are two and a half, quarter hours from Broadford, 84 miles where there's a small hospital run by general practitioners or gypsies who have special skills, particularly intubation. Uh, and we're two and a half hours from Glasgow, 104 miles down Loch Lomond side. And uh, there, we have a visiting service um, to to Sky, and these are the theatre team and Leo Murray, who's the lead clinician um, in Sky, uh, and I will do um, endoscopies there, including uh, gastroscopies, colonoscopies. Um, I'll also do quite a lot of local anaesthetic groinery, um, penile and scrotal surgery there um, on the island to save the patients having to travel um, back onto the mainland. So this is the case mix that we have, and I'm not doing everything in these, um, but I will say that this is basically um, the sort of work that we can end up doing um, in different parts. of And I'll explain how we do this and try and stay within governance and, uh, um, and how we make it, make it work. Um, and we also end up obviously having to get involved in some of these emergencies because of the distances involved uh, with ectopics, occasionally cesarean sections, Uh, and with uh, miscarriages that are bleeding significantly and can't travel to Inverness, uh, and we end up doing uh, evacuations of those, um, if necessary, um, on that, and occasionally have to open chests because the chest unit is in Glasgow, uh, and they may not make it down there. These are the support services. We have radiology. We don't have radiologists on site. They are in Inverness. They come once a fortnight or so uh, and do about two to three sessions, We have ultrasonographers. We have a CT scanner, which uh, involves the radiologist reading the scans in Inverness. So we uh, digitalize it and send it up the line, and they have a look at it, and it'll be in Inverness within a matter of three or four minutes of it being um, produced in in Fort William. We have laboratory staff, and we have a cross-match facility, uh, and we have some fresh frozen plasma. Um, We don't have platelets. Uh, We've got a physiology technician to do echoes and spirometry, Physiotherapy department and pharmacist, uh, OT and speech therapy, and a, and a dietetic department. Uh, we also have podiatrists as well. So these are our support services that we're able to use. But one of the reasons we're there is we have quite a lot of trauma will come in, and particularly um, it comes in off the mountains. Here's a chap who lost his gloves when he was trying to put his, uh, uh, put his over, over trousers on on the top of the Ben uh, and slid off. Uh, and tried to stop himself with his fingers, a girl who fell a 1,000 feet in the Corbett's in uh, Glen Etiv and scalped herself um, in the snow, and uh, um, here's a chap who's uh, only broken his fibula. Um, he's got an intact tibia, but it's actually outside his leg there, and he was in Five Finger Gully. If you take the wrong route off the Bend Plateau, you will end up going down Five Finger Gully, and uh, he's, he's lucky to have survived it. Um, on that and a snowboarder who got too much air under his board and unfortunately got a c5 on c6 uh, fracture dislocation with complete cord transection so we see it comes in through the door um, and we need to manage it we have a consultant-led team but there are no a and e consultants uh, we are a consultant surgeon a consultant anesthetist and a consultant physician uh, supported by our nurses Um, We are all ATLS positive. Um, In other words, we've been trained in advanced trauma life support. I'm an an ATLS instructor and have been for 18 years. Um, And our nurses are TNCC positive, which is Trauma Nurse Core Course, which is the equivalent nursing course um, in uh, in trauma management. So we resuscitate, we stabilise we transfer if necessary and I'll explain one or two cases in the circulatory bit of this as to how we have to make decisions on these and we now have packs which means that our images are all sent to Livingston and therefore are accessible by all the Scottish hospitals within about 20 minutes to half an hour of them being taken in any hospital. So we don't have to put scans now in a taxi to send to Glasgow. We can actually get them, phone them up and ask them to look once they've been put onto the storage system in Livingston. And that's revolutionised our care of these patients, to be able to discuss the images clearly um, with them. But it isn't all mountain trauma. These are the sort of accidents that you can come across Um, That's one I came across on my way to go up to Rock Ness. I do quite a lot of uh, support work at music festivals. And uh, I was going up to Rock Ness and came across this one um, just outside Fort Augustus. Um, And uh, there are uh, numerous accidents that will occur and we get the casualties brought in to us um, in there. But we do see a lot of mountain trauma. And here's an ice axe injury, um, a... uh, a member of the medical profession, actually, who fell on an axe and uh, uh, punctured his chest. Um, and a climber from uh, on the back of Anachmoor, who was aged 68 and still ice climbing, um, and uh, fell the night before, and his partner walked all the way around Anachmoor um, uh, during the night to raise the alarm. And uh, he came in with, obviously, a very nasty injury there, and a, a rugby player actually coming in with a dislocated ankle, fracture, dislocation of ankle. But when we see these patients, we actually walk past that injury in a sense and we aim at airway and uh, and getting into circulation very quickly um, rather than getting thrown by what looks like a horrendous injury um, on there. We work very closely with the mountain rescue teams. Um, We have the two busiest mountain rescue teams, uh, in Loch Harbour and in Glencoe. They're the two teams that uh, see the most um, casualties or bring the most casualties to us. They work in very difficult circumstances. We don't criticize them if they don't get the diagnosis right um, when they're in a Force 10 uh, on the Bend Plateau and trying to assess whether or not there's a pneumothorax or a fractured pelvis or whatever. Uh, they parcel them up and, all being well, get them into one of the search and rescue helicopters uh, to bring them down to us. We've had our experience of avalanches as well, and you may have heard of these in the news. This was one uh, in 1998, and uh, uh, this is a friend who was actually a a mountain guide who um, had taken a group of uh, Venture Scouts from Kent up onto G&T Gully and was demonstrating how to look for an avalanche. Um, And unfortunately, they had an avalanche, and this guy was a very, very experienced climber. Um, And uh, an avalanche came down and took out uh, four of them, but three of them survived. Um, and were 16 hours under the snow um, and were found by the mountain rescue team. He was actually a member of the mountain rescue team um, in that, but surprising that he survived in a pocket of air for that and had no other injuries um, on that. This was this year's one, um, and a whole series of medical students um, were on Bidian, a beautiful mountain in the the winter, um, and triggered an avalanche, um, and four died in the avalanche, um, and a girl came into us with an open skull, frontal skull fracture, um, who remarkably has re- uh, has recovered um, from that um, and is making really good progress. Uh, when we thought that she wouldn't make it as well um, on that, but um, they're the, the the mountaineers who go out in the mountain rescue, they do enjoy going out to because they know that they want someone to do it for them because they are all mountaineers. They're not. Um, uh, and they are obviously concerned about their safety, but they also uh, are very keen to, t- to make sure it works um, for, for anyone um, out in the hills um, and to take care of them. And a lot of them now have paramedic skills as well, which makes it uh, 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 so much better um, for their care on their way into the hospital. I want to just illustrate three cases of um, C of circulation of how we've managed them and some of the issues that that happen. This is a 35-year-old uh, mountain biker who was coming down the Anachmoor um, mountain bike course, which is voted by the world's top riders as the best in the world, uh, which means it's probably the most dangerous as well. <laughs> but uh, they uh, came. He was coming down this at speed, went over a jump, and he landed on the bike saddle with his abdomen, um, and he came into us. Um, with abdominal pain and was uh, obviously shocked. Um, and his pulse rate initially was not too bad. His blood pressure wasn't bad, but he had an ultrasound which showed a fluid, uh, a lot of fluid in the abdomen. And he was starting to go off fairly quickly, as you see, his pulse rate rose and his blood pressure dropped. Um, and he ended up going straight into theatre um, after the ultrasound and three litres of blood in his peritoneal cavity, tearing the small bowel mesentery and great omentum. We controlled the hemorrhage, um, did a small bowel resection. He had about six litres blood loss, and over his uh, post operative recovery, um, nine units of blood were given, and he went home on the sixth post operative day. And it's very satisfying to treat patients like that um, as a general surgeon working in this, in this unit. Another one that caused a little bit, bit of a dilemma 24 year old male Storman crushed against a forklift truck. This was last October. Um, and uh, these were large chipboards that came and squashed him against a forklift truck. And he came in with right upper quadrant pain, hemodynamically stable and normal, um, and he had shoulder tip pain. thought there must be something going on here with that sort of story, uh, and he had a CT scan. Um, That's his CT scan, and for those of you that are not used to looking at CTs, um, liver here, okay, spleen over here, a lot of blood around the spleen, and there's a tear going into the, into the liver here, and you can see a blush of contrast jetting out of a, a vessel there. And the question I then had was, do I open him at the Belford with eight units of blood only in the bank, um, or as he's r- relatively stable at the moment, he fainted in CT, do I transfer him to Inverness? And uh, the... An Eastist who was on in Inverness that day, I phoned him and discussed it with him, and he'd worked at Camp Bastion um, in Afghanistan and said, I think you should just send him up. Um, Low-volume resuscitation, which is what we try and do in these situations, if you open him there, you'll empty your blood bank pretty quickly, and I think we can probably do something about it very quickly if everything's ready. So an hour and a half later or so, two hours later, he was in the angio room, um, and you can see... That the are uh, the vessel bleeding here, and then you see the catheters coming up uh, and deploying um, the deploying the coils uh, to actually stop the hemorrhage. The next morning he was having his breakfast in ITU um, and had not had it open, had, had not been opened. So it was the right decision, but it's a difficult decision because it's 70 miles to the Angio room. It's not just round the corner, um, and it is a difficult decision. Uh, And there's a lot of debate in our A&E room um, because the other surgeons were down and said, oh, come on, we should be opening and packing him. Um, But we didn't have a lot of blood and we don't have a lot of products. So it's a a difficult one. Here's um, another one that was observed. Um, We observed him briefly and then he went up the road. 17-year-old skier in the days before snowboards had ankle straps, um, and they're a bit like sort of razor blades on, on ice are these things with a bit of a weight behind them and uh, a snowboard was heading down towards a, a queue on one of the toes. Um, and this 17-year-old thought he would uh, try and stop it but went over a ski fence, came in with right-sided abdominal pain, um, generalized tenderness, a bit of a tacky um, and he developed frank hematuria. And, sorry. It jumping mm. sorry there we go and so he had a CT scan and you can see here there's a sort of normal looking round kidney and there's one here that looks as though it's got something going on in it it certainly doesn't look like a nice kidney shape on there with a lot of hematoma around about it and there was a small tear in the liver as well um, and that in fact when you reconstruct it is his upper pole of his kidney and that's the lower pole of his kidney if we hadn't had that scan, we may well have ended up opening this chap, and I think he would have lost that kidney. Um, but we decided to, to manage him conservatively, um, and he had a radioisotope scan shortly afterwards in Inverness. Um, there was a bit of leakage of urine into a hematoma, into the hematoma, um, but he was discharged a month later. However, he represented a couple of weeks later, um, right loin pain, abdominal pain. He had obstructed upper pole calices and there seemed to be possible communication with a urinoma, Um, and so he had a nephrostomy put in, and then after a while, the anti-grade nephrostogram did show good drainage down the right ureter, and he was discharged 10 days later with that in. The nephrostomy was uh, removed after another 10 days, and an ultrasound scan about a month later showed just a 2.5-centimeter scar in the mid-zone with normal functioning upper and lower poles. That was working in conjunction with our colleagues in the urology department and I'll come back to that network at some point. Pelvic trauma is one of the things we see quite a lot of as well. Um, This is a 33-year-old man who was on a black run. He slid about 700 feet over rocks and and snow, came in with a core temper 33 and he was shocked. Um, That's his pelvis, open-book pelvis, dislocated hip, um, fractures in here. Um, He's going to have a scrotal hematoma, he certainly does. Um, before we had binders, um, we actually used to put in Steinemann pins and use some orthopedic cord to actually bring the pelvis together um, and uh, claret corks to protect um, for, uh, on, the, on top uh, on there. And we did a cystogram on him and you can see that he has an extra uh, peritoneal rupture of his bladder here um, and he was managed with um, a, um, a catheter for 10 days for that. And he went up the road to get a plate on his, uh, on his pelvis. And his, as you can see, we put his hip back. But the orthopedic work is done um, in Inverness uh, on that. One of the things you may not see a lot of here, this is, that's the Papa Coe, and this is, um, is cold injury. Um, when we manage people with cold injury, um, we obviously start by rewarming them centrally. And one is warmed, humidified oxygen. The other is the bear hugger. Um, we do central rewarming using um, a DPL catheter, um, and uh, this uh, is putting it in under local anesthetic, putting us a, uh, a uh, dialysis catheter in, aspirating to see if there's any blood there, um, and then running warmed fluid in um, a couple of liters in, leave it for 20 minutes, half an hour, and run it out, run some more in. And this is central rewarming of the patient. Um, these were his hands. This is a chap who fell on Crease which is the mountain next to the Glencoe Ski Resort. Um, he'd fallen in the evening, um, and he'd only got his inners on. When he came round after his head injury, his hands were frozen, and he couldn't get his outers and his food out of the bag. They were frozen. Um, and so he lay all night, and then the Glencoe team picked him up the next morning uh, and brought him into to us with a Cortemp 33, pneumothorax on the right, uh, and these hands. And I'll show you... Um, the course of frostbite. Um, so they look not too bad. Um, we've got a very modern bowl here to rewarm, and we actually uh, had been using GTN. We give them aspirin, and uh, we have other things that we use for these. But here we are at 24 hours, um, and you see them starting to blister. Um, and at eight days, they're beginning to go change a little bit, and unfortunately, got an infection. Um, We'd actually been using prostacyclins in them, uh, prostacyclins to try and um, open up the vessels. Um, We have used hyperbaric oxygen in the past as well. Um, Here we are at three weeks. And the important thing is to stay the knife, not to actually get involved um, with any surgery, but to watch and wait and see what happens. Um, And at three months, here we have his hands. He's a computer operator from Kent. Um, he's still got one or two areas that need to just sort of snap off, as it were, but he's got a, two functioning hands that will uh, enable him to work um, on that. One or two other things, just to tell you a little bit about some of the other traumas here, is an ice axe injury. This chap was on Ambudagh, on the Mamores and fell onto his ice axe and walked down to Mamore Lodge and phoned for an ambulance. Um, the climbers tend not to sort of lie down always and phone for a helicopter. Um, he walked off and then phoned for an ambulance from Mamore Lodge. Uh, and he'd taken a chunk off his, um, uh, his pelvis there and dissected out his right ureter and cecum, but didn't damage either of them, which was amazing. <laughs> he did a very nice uh, right hemicolectomy uh, dissection uh, without injuring the bowel. We don't tend to get involved going out because there can be one or two rescues going on at the same time, so we need to be at base but there was one which I got called to um, and this is the summit, toe button, summit button toe at Glencoe Ski Resort. It was minus seven um, and uh, this is about 15 feet in the air and there is a tech, one of the um, people who run the toes was up on top trying to free it um, and then there was some give in the, in the rope and uh, he got caught between the bull wheel uh, and the frame. It's a four inch space and he was trapped up to both mid-thighs, and I was phoned to say, would I come up and amputate this guy mid-thigh, minus seven, 15 feet in the air? Um, and Bill, I'm sure, would tell me that that was not a good idea. And I didn't think it was a good idea either um, in, uh, in doing mid-thigh amputations uh, at that uh, temperature and, uh, and in there. And there were various people, the fire brigade and others, mountain rescue people, ski patrollers and others, and he was down in underneath here um, with a drip in, but it kept freezing. Um, and we were trying to work out how to get him out. And in fact, we took the bull wheel apart uh, in two and a half hours, um, as they would do in servicing. Um, Cut the cable, um, and then undid all the bolts and lowered him, and then into a helicopter and into the Belford, and uh, that's his limbs. Uh, We didn't save that one, but that one was saved. Uh, He was given four units of blood, re-warmed, central line catheterized, and went up the road within an hour to Inverness. He didn't get crush syndrome um, and was, um, had, had eventually gone back to snowboarding on one leg. Um, amazing story. Um, but uh, we also had Braveheart, and that produced quite a bit of work as well, and Mel Gibson and his uh, colleagues. And I went into the, into the outpatient department. This was about 95 or 96. And uh, this chap had been buzzed. I think it was a helicopter or a plane had gone up Glen Nevis when they were filming. He was on a horse and came off. And came in in full body, full armour, um, and uh, so it's it's an interesting place to work. But we also deal with general surgical emergencies, appendectomies, etc. This is last one of last week's laparotomies. Um, a chap came over from Sky with small bowel obstruction, and you can see that there's a volvulus there, and he's had that undone um, by us in in the hospital, and he went back to Sky four days, five days later. Uh, back to Broadford for a couple of days' convalescence, uh, and then home after that. So I've given you a picture of where we are and what we're doing. Um, What are the challenges? Well, we have a geography problem. We have transport problems. There's an increasing, as you know, complexity of care. Um, Shortened training time. Maintenance of skills is important for all of us. There's recruitment and retention problems. And there's obviously a recession in health economics such that people are not wanting to put money into things and are thinking of ways that they can save money. In the geography, um, in Fort William, we obviously are a distance away from the major hospitals. And if you were to go from here to Liverpool for an assessment of your appendix, I think your um, patients would regard that as quite a long distance to go. Um, and that's what... Potentially, if we don't have the unit where we are, is one of the problems. Transport with the weather and the roads is difficult. One of the answers was to maybe we should combine the two units in Oban and Fort William, 55 miles apart, Um, and we have an emergency medical retrieval service. Um, So we had a project where the Birmingham uh, Health Services Management Centre came up and got £80,000 to do a study to look at joining the two units together, but couldn't really see a proper way of doing it. There was going to be one downgraded um, and the other would become a hospital, but there weren't normal referral routes between the two hospitals. Uh, Oban tended to go to Glasgow, we tended to go to Inverness. The local people um, didn't think it was a particularly good idea either, and one of the biggest protest meetings I've been at where There were um, two and a half thousand people out of a population of 20,000. It's quite significant. Um, There were 900 in the hall, 500 outside, and 1,000 signed a piece of paper at the door because they couldn't get in. Um, And uh, to try and see if there's a way of trying to get a different sort of service. The EMRS has come online, uh, supported by Scottish Government, and is an important uh, initiative to transfer patients. Whenever I transferred to Glasgow with a multiple injured patient, I lost my anaesthetist for seven hours. Um, So I didn't have an anaesthetist in the unit um, during that time. This now brings an anaesthetist to the place, and the patient is taken away, usually in a helicopter, but the weather isn't always good enough, and occasionally by land ambulance um, on that. How do we cope then with the increasing complexity of care, the shortened training time, and the maintenance of skills? Well, the managed clinical network and shared care is one way of doing it, and I'll demonstrate that to you shortly. We have a remote and rural fellowship sponsored by Scottish Government to try and give people uh, some time in working in the things that will bring them up to speed for the sort of uh, conditions that they're gonna face. And to maintain skills, then we can export skills. My colleague goes to Edinburgh and does two days of laparoscopic cholecystectomies, uh, uh, and uh, and we'll do eight or ten lap colis in those two days to keep her skills up Uh, on that. I've gone to Inverness to do uh, operations there as well, or we bring patients from Inverness down to Fort William to ensure that we are going to be keeping our skills up. The network, it's it's important. This is the urologist Steve Bramwell based in Inverness and myself and we do a lot of talking. Now this is Pax at work. He's able to look at the same films uh, and discuss the case um, with me immediately to decide how to manage it. We joint operate since 1995. Steve and I have joint, or one of his colleagues have joint operated every three months on selected cases um, in Fort William. Here we're taking a, a, a big stone out of a bladder um, together. I was doing the procedure and he was assisting me on that one. But we tend to work together and decide who's going to do it um, in that. So we have a close link uh, working there. The urodynamics is in Inverness. Intimate self-catheterization training and self-dilatation service um, instruction is up in Inverness as well. Um, just to give you an idea of what we do. Joint urology cases, these are the ones we do on the list together and these are the ones that I do when I'm on my own. So it shows you that I'm doing, obviously, the majority of the flex and rigid cystos on there. These will be cases that I wanted him to see, to assess with me, uh, and to decide how best to manage them. Uh, Optical urethrotomies, um, I've done two or three of those nephrectomies, but it's been on the joint urology day um, that we've done them and we were doing some lap nephrectomies but the managers felt that the lap nephrectomies should stay in Inverness uh, and do more up there so he hasn't been down for the last few years to do that I still do a significant number of TURPs and I select them so I do the appropriate size but I will do some of these with my um, colleague um, Steve uh, or one of his colleagues coming to observe me um, in doing that and managing bladder tumors bladder neck incisions Um, Steve has done all the TVTs there to save patients traveling, their transvaginal tape operations for um, stress incontinence, and we've even done two cystectomies on carefully selected cases. So the majority of cases are done by the generalist, um, with 12% of them being done um, with the super specialist uh, available. What about GI cancer? Well, we have a meeting in Inverness with pathologists, radiologists, surgeons, uh, gastroenterologists, there and Wick, uh, Fort William and Stornoway um, will also be video conferencing in every Friday afternoon between two and four to discuss every new GI cancer or uh, new problem that arises from that and a management plan is then decided. So how can you keep going on um, uh, doing colorectal work in a small hospital? Well, we needed to show that we had a quality of care. Um, and this was just a, a study we did uh, between 93 and 2002 of my patients. And there were 350 patients had surgery, 168 non-resectional for various things, but 182 had resections and anastomosis. And there were three anastomotic leaks in those, and they'd be for Crohn's, for um, other conditioned diverticular disease. But we wrote up the malignant disease because we felt that was quite important. Difficult to get it published. British Journal of Surgery, Edinburgh um, College Journal did not want to publish it because they said it wasn't their direction of travel. It was entitled Small and Beautiful 10 Years Colorectal Cancer. But these are my figures um, for that 10 year period of the 98 cases. Um, Out of the 84 that had a join up, uh, um, 2.3% leak rate. So two leaks out of those 84. Local recurrence rate, and these are the ranges in Colin McArdle's BMJ paper from 2000. Of the published ranges, is 0 to 25. Um, local recurrence rate, 4.6% uh, between 0 and 21. Post-op mortality, uh, of 2%. And survival, um, uh, 10-year survival of 45.8%. So we felt that they were reasonable figures, um, and therefore could continue doing that. And with joint operating, Um, with the colorectal surgeons once or twice a year. They come down, I go up, um, we've continued to do it. How else could we do it? Well, credentialing is one of the things that we can do. And it's accredited training to enable the general surgeon to perform specific operations. Now, I've had hand surgeons and uh, plastic surgeons say, you shouldn't be doing a carpal tunnel operation as a general surgeon, Um, and that is obviously difficult. I've gone and done seven one afternoon uh, and in fact um, Faisal Farouk, who's uh, one of the NE consultants here in Nottingham came up that afternoon um, and he did two, I did three and the orthopaedic consultant did two as well and I've continued doing 30 or 40 of those a year um, ever since um, then. Um, there are other things that can be done um, and skin grafting which we do and removal of small skin tumours. Um, flexible and rigid cystoscopy, because generally they're endoscopic trainees um, that will come through as well, and they could be um, trained by the urologist. Um, and obviously, OBS and could uh, able to do a section and to deal with retained placenta, etc. Some of the training issues. This was a, um, a, a Scottish Parliament Health Committee report on workforce planning. Training of many medical staff has also worked against remoter areas in that it's been urban-based, and some would argue urban biased. And the training bodies are now beginning to address this issue, thankfully. Um, Polly Toynbee, um, in 1999, said mercifully, general surgeons are gradually on their way out. That was in the middle of my career. Um, But it's interesting that two days ago, this report was published by Professor David Greenaway, um, which is looking at the shape of training in the UK. And I took great heart from this, and I would recommend it to you because it is obviously going to be taken on board, and you can read it on the net, um, on the shape of training. But one of the recommendations in the changing the balance between the specialist and generalist, feeling that we've gone too far down the super specialist route, is that a medical workforce with a broader approach to patient care will mean more doctors will be capable of working in rural and isolated areas. With a bigger recruitment pool, these areas should be able to attract more doctors. The first advert for my job went out about two, three months ago. We had two applicants, one withdrew, uh, and they didn't appoint. Um, So there is a problem, um, and it's going to be a big problem for these people. We have a fellowship which we've worked towards uh, in conjunction with the uh, um, ISCP, with the Curriculum Programme, and we had a Training Pathways uh, Steering Group chaired by the now President of the Edinburgh College, uh, Ian Ritchie, an orthopaedic surgeon from Sterling and myself, we were co-chairs of that. And we have a curriculum um, for training as a post-CCT fellowship. Uh, and that gives some of the competencies that are needed uh, in addition to general surgical training. So recruitment and retention is a problem, um, and the recession. A financial carrot may be one way of trying to, to deal with that and giving a, an extra loading like a London waiting to the rural areas. But then you may say, well, um, I work in a very busy unit in Nottingham or Glasgow or London. I should get a financial carrot as well. Um, But attracting people to these jobs is probably not very difficult in the same way as it is to ours. Maybe engaging a recruiting agency. Um, Certainly getting the medical students on board has been very important for us. Um, And they have a year in Inverness. Uh, And these are some of the comments that were made by the medical students with their year in Inverness, rather than being based in Aberdeen, uh, and they got an opportunity to experience something of uh, working in uh, in, the, in these areas. So, to draw it to a close, to get an effective remote area service, we obviously need to have good communication in networks. We need to have um, surgeons who are super specialists who are willing to support the generalists working in these areas or they will be devoid. The whole of the west coast of Scotland will be devoid, uh, and the islands will be devoid of surgeons, um, because they will be taken out um, from there, and it'll be a GP-run unit. Um, And with the sort of trauma that's coming through, and the transport difficulties that we have, I think that's going to be a problem. So it needs to be shared care. Um, Resuscitate and stabilise, we triage and treat, and we transfer when necessary. And also, I've always said that you need to have the honesty as a rural surgeon to say, I can't deal with that, but I actually know someone to deal with most of the problems that face coming in through the door, and have the humility to say, well, I think you'd be better off going to that unit rather than me having a go um, at doing that. So in summary, I've given you a picture of Viking surgery. The future is not brilliant because there aren't a lot of generalists, although I take heart from the Greenaway report. I've given you a description of some of the things we do in the Rural General Hospitals. I've described uh, examples of working managed clinical networks. And I've highlighted the challenges and some possible solutions um, for the the Viking surgeons. That's what we do with our difficult cases in Shetland. That's up Heliar. And that's the panorama from our bedroom window that I wake up to in the morning, when I can see it and it's not raining. Thank you for listening.
0: <laughs> David, if someone who <coughs> yeah. you sure? if works in an ivory tower, I just find that so interesting, um, and I'm deeply jealous of your view